Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 7. Please excuse my voice this morning. I'll try to get through this um, with you because we need, we need to hear from God. And um, the Word of God is how God speaks to us today. And so you, you would be helped by following along in your Bible as we look at this text together. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 7 contains 89 verses and is the second lo- longest chapter in the Bible next, next to uh, Psalm 119. And we're going to cover the entire chapter today. Let me help you see this chapter in its historical context. God had given instructions to Moses at Mount Sinai for how to set up the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is set up. About 11 months after the exodus from Egypt, the tabernacle is set up. Numbers chapters 1 through 6 take place a month after the tabernacle was initially set, set up at Mount Sinai. But now in chapter 7, you should notice the first word there, now, on the, or the first uh, idea there, on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it. So although chapters 1 through 6 take us a month after the tabernacle was set up, chapter 7 goes back to when the tabernacle was set up. So the events do not follow in numbers completely in chronological order. Here, he's, uh, the author here, Moses, is trying to show us an idea that connects to what he is trying to show. And here he's trying to show how it is that each person contributes to the tabernacle and its, its, uh, its service and its transportation. How would it be moved from one place to the next? So really in chapter 7 we have a flashback of sorts. It takes place around 1445 B.C. And while you may be initially concerned that we're trying to cover 89 verses this morning, you'll see here quickly that most of the verses are repetitious with only a slight variation. In fact, the longest section, verses 10 through 18, are just a repetition of the same idea for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we'll cover that um, in in a fairly short time. The Levitical tribe was designated to care for the tabernacle and its furnishings and the sacrifices but that did not exempt the other tribes from participating in and contributing to the worship of God. So sometimes we can think of the Levites like kind of the professional worshipers. They're the ones who are going to worship on our behalf or take care of all the worship things. We'll come and we'll do whatever we have to do. Show us which hoops to jump through. But they'll take care of all of that kind of stuff. But what this text is showing us is that each tribe is responsible to participate in and contribute to the worship of God. And they're going to do this gladly because God asks them to do it. We finish in chapter 6 by seeing that God is holy and that He desires to live among His people so that He can bless them. And that's how the end of the text read in chapter 6. God wants to to live among His people so that He can bless them. Let's look at chapter 7 and see how God, God desires to bless. How He motivates His people to participate in and contribute to the act of worshiping Him. Let's read the first nine verses. This is the Word of God. Now on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's households, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. 
when they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and an ox for each one. Then they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these things from them, <coughs> accept these things from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting. And you shall give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service, and four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service under the direction of Ithamar the son of Aaron the priest. But he did not give any to the sons of Kohath because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on the shoulder. Here, here in... Um, in chapter 7, we see that no one exempt, is exempt from participating in and contributing to the worship of God. No one is exempt from contributing to the worship of God. All the tribes of Israel are involved in helping to supply what is necessary for the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was first constructed, they supplied all the gifts that were necessary, all of the resources that were necessary, the fabric, the poles, uh, the stones, everything that was necessary the whole, all the twelve tribes of Israel came and, and offered these things so that they could be done. And here we see something similar in its ongoing uh, service of the tabernacle. That, that it's not something that, you know, we'll just leave to them. That's their job. They can figure out how to get all the things they need. And one of the key problems that they had, or um, one of the one of the conflicts that might come up because they had to carry all this equipment, particularly all of the coverings. And, uh, and the, the structure, the bones of, of the tabernacle, how were they going to transport this tabernacle from one place to another? And here, in verses 1 through 9, we have the answer. The Gershonites are given two carts and four oxen. The Merarites were given four carts and eight oxen. They were responsible for um, the, the coverings of the tabernacle, and then, and then the Merarites were responsible for the bones, the, the structure of the tabernacle. And so those would be fairly heavy. They wouldn't be able to carry those uh, very easily. So they had the, this equipment that could be used to help transport it. But you notice in verse 9 that the Kohathites got nothing in terms of transportation because they didn't need any. All of their responsibility was the holy objects. Remember, they had to carry the Ark of the Covenant and they were supposed to carry it on poles. They had to carry the lampstand. That was carried on a pole. Uh, they had to carry the, the table of showbread. Those were carried on poles as well. Those are all the holy objects. They were responsible for them. All those had to be carried, not taken on carts. In verses 10 through 88, we see the offerings from Israel. Verse 10 begins the heart of the chapter and tells us that the leaders of the twelve tribes brought their gifts to the altar as gifts to the Levites for the worship of God. So let me read that verse for us. Verse 10. The leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed, so the leaders offered their offering before the Lord. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, Let them present their offering one leader each day for the dedication of the altar. So here's what God is expecting of them. Each tribe needs to be represented by one leader, and each leader needs to bring some kind of an offering. Now let's take a look at what these offerings are. In verses 12 through 29, we have the tribes to the east of the tabernacle. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. So first, Judah. Judah is the first tribe in verses 12 through 17. So let me just show you what that looks like. It might be a little hard to see here, but this is our picture from before. 
where you have the, the tabernacle there in the center, and you have Aaron's family to the east of the tabernacle, right by the opening of the tabernacle. And then you have um, Merari's family to the north, Gershon's family to the west, and Kohath's family to the south. So each of these, these are all Levitical families. And they were broken up by their responsibilities for how they cared for the tabernacle. Then outside of that was where the 12 tribes of Israel. You have three over here, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And you have Reuben, Simeon, and Gad down here, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin over here, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And what, what Moses is going to do as he's writing this text here in Numbers chapter 7 is he's going to actually follow this kind of pattern to show which day they come. So on the first day, notice we have Judah in chapter 7, verse, verse 12. Now, the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the tribe of Judah. And his offering was, and then it lists the offering. Then notice verse 18. Here the second tribe. On the second day, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, leader of Issachar. See that there? Judah, Issachar. And then on the third day, verse 24, it was Eliab, the son of Helon, leader of the son of Zebulun. So you have Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And it goes throughout the whole chapter, moving to the tribes to the south in verses 30 through 47, the tribes to the west in verses 48 through 65, the tribes to the north in verses 66 through 83. Our God is an orderly God, is he not? He expects them to come at a specific time according to how he aligned them in relationship to the tabernacle. Remember, the purpose of that was that everybody saw that the tabernacle was at the center of who they were. God's presence was the most important thing about their identity. So let's look at the content of the gift, of the gifts that are given. And just for an example, we'll, we'll stay here on Zebulun here in verse 24. Notice what his offering was. And what you'll find is if you were to read through all these verses, all of these gifts are exactly the same. Okay, So really the only thing that's different is verse 24. The first verse of the section is different. And the last line, the last sentence of the section is different. Everything else is the same. Verse 25. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels. One silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain, a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense. One young bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering. One male goat for a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Eliab, the son of Hela. Helan. So, while the day of the giving is different for each tribe, and the leader of the tribe is going to be different, obviously, the tribe is going to be different, the content of the gifts are, is all the same. All the same. So first, there's a grain offering. There's a grain offering, which is the one silver dish with flour, one silver bowl with flour, one gold pan with incense. And if you remember from our study in Leviticus, Perhaps you don't. I, I actually didn't either. I had to go back to my notes and, and remember what the grain offering was for. The grain offering was to be given from the best of their harvest, not the leftovers, but the best of their har harvest, the fresh heads of grain. And this offering was a thanksgiving offering. It showed that they were dedicating themselves to God. They were consecrating themselves for the purpose of God's leading. That was the grain offering. So that's the first part of this gift. The second part of this gift was the burnt offering which you, you see there in 
verse 27, beginning there. One young bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering. The um, burnt offering was the most common kind of offering that an Israelite would offer. It was offered morning and evening. It would keep the priests busy. And these are animals. Notice what kind of animals are used. They're not, uh, they're not unclean animals. Wouldn't it be more helpful if God said, you know, bring me a pig or a camel? Animals that they couldn't eat. God's saying, no, raise up in your flocks what you're actually going to use for yourself and give that to me. So I'm taking up your best to show who really is in charge and who is most important here. The purpose of the burnt offering was to atone for unintentional sins. And again, you can um, read about this in Leviticus chapter 1. Uh, Leviticus chapters 1 through 3, 1 through 5, I should say, for all these offerings. It lists the, the reasons for them. The third kind of offering is the sin offering. You see that in verse, in verse uh, 34. One male goat for a sin offering. This is all there was. Particularly, this is speaking about the offering from the leader. Now, depending on where you were, as a person in the, the, the tribes of Israel, if you were a poor person, you would give one kind of offering. If you were a rich person, you would give another kind of offering. If you were a leader, you would give a goat, a male goat. And so that's what he does here. The leader of Zebulun brings a male goat. And his job was to lay, well, the priest would have him lay his hand on the goat, and then the goat would die. The priest would take the blood, sprinkle it on the altar, and it was done for the atonement of unintentional sins. It would show that that, that person's sins has been, have been transferred effectively to another, another being, uh, in this case a goat, who would cover over his sins in a sense, um, at least temporarily. So you have the grain offering, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and then notice this final kind of offering, the peace offering here in verse 29. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. So you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 3. The burnt offering, everything was burnt up except for the skin. And that was to show that all of it belongs to me. It's talking about God. God is saying all of it belongs to me. But here the peace offering is actually kind of a shared meal. They would give the best of the, these animals, the best kind, kind of like the filet mignon of, of the, these kind of animals, would be given to God on the offering. The best portions of the meat would be given to God. The rest would be shared between the priests and the offerers, the, the people who, ha, who were wanting to make peace with God. And the implication is that, that God wants to have fellowship with His people. Isn't this consistent with what we've been seeing in Numbers so far? that God desires His people to be holy so that He can live among them in order to bless them. The whole purpose of the sacrificial system is that. God wants to bless His people. And isn't it interesting that the peace offering is much larger than all of the other offerings combined? Right? Notice how many again. Verse 35, um, sorry, verse 29. Two oxen, five male five. Rams, five male goats, five lambs, one year old. So you have twelve. Uh, we have seventeen animals given just for the peace offering. What's God saying there? This is what I'm doing. All these, all these rituals, these sacrifices are for, so that I can come and meet with you, so that I can have fellowship with you. And then verses eighty-four through eighty-eight. 
we have the sum of all the offerings combined. So what, the, what Moses does here is he, after 12 days, they're all collected and they're brought together and here's what we have. Verse 84, this was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. And then here you just take each of the 12 tribes and multiply what they brought, which each one brought, and multiply it by 12. 12 silver dishes, 12 silver bowls, 12 gold pans, each silver dish weighing 130 shekels or 39 pounds, each bowl weighing 70 shekels or 21 pounds. All the silver of the utensils was 2,400 shekels, about um, uh, according to the, sexual, uh, the shekel of the sanctuary. The 12 gold pans full of incense weighing 10 shekels, about 3 pounds, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the pans, 120 shekels. Verse 87, All the oxen for the burnt offering, 12 bulls. All the rams, 12. The male lambs, one year old, of their grain offering, 12. The male goats for a sin offering, 12. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings, 24 bulls. All the rams, 60. Male goats, 60. Male lambs, one year old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. So over the course of 12 days, the Levites have this huge load of animals that are going to be used for future sacrifices. Very well, they could have been sacrificed all uh, each day, but it could be also that they hung on to those animals to use for later, uh, later sacrifices. So we have this order. We have the grain offering, the thanksgiving offering. We, we come into God's presence with thanksgiving. They want to consecrate themselves. And then the whole burnt offering and the sin offering, which was sanctifying them, saying, God, I am sinful. You are holy. I need to be, my sin needs to be atoned for. Uh, Where are we here? Sorry about that. Um, There we go. Somewhere around there. Um, So we start out with the Thanksgiving offering. Then we offer sacrifices and atonement for our sins and we finish up with this huge load of animals that are meant to be shared with God effectively, shared with the priests as well, these peace offerings. And so God, I think, is saying, listen, there is a specific responsibility that we have. We come into His presence with thanksgiving. We confess our sins effectively to Him and then God has peace with us. We have fellowship with Him. God is emphasizing, I think, the fellowship that He desires with His people. The final verse of the text is found in verse 89. The meeting with God. Now when Moses went into the tent to speak with him, that is with God, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. So he spoke to them, to, to him. So he, God, spoke to him, Moses. This goes along with the song we sang earlier that in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, they were banned from the garden and they were the garden was protected by these two angels, two cherubim that had swords and were protecting people from coming into the presence of God who were sinful. And then in the Old Testament, we had a similar, the, the, the text of the verse that we were singing um, goes on to say that that really in the tabernacle you also have that same idea because interwoven on the veil of the temple were two cherubim which was a symbol to the priest to say hey you cannot come in here without being holy in fact only the high priest could go in and it could only be once a year 
And then, of course, the song continues by saying that Jesus uh, paved—excuse <coughs> me—Jesus paved the way for us to be able to now go into the throne of grace. That is that when He died on the cross, the temple veil was torn in two, and now these two cherubim that were that were guarding the Ark of the Testimony, the, the presence of God, have now stepped aside so that we can enter in. And now we have access to directly to God's throne through Jesus Christ. And what a great privilege it is. And so one day we will sing, even with the cherubim, of what a great Savior that we have. It's a great song uh, if you consider those words. Here we have that idea where Moses now, one of the priests, the high priest in fact, along with Aaron, goes in. This time Moses goes by himself, but it's designed to be the dwelling place of God. This, this tabernacle is not an empty museum that you know, we can just look on and say, wow, what a great thing that's been made here. No, this is meant to be an actual dwelling place for God to come down and meet with His people so that He could speak to them, so that He could bless them. And that is exactly what we see happening here in verse 89. So what are we to learn from this more technical passage in, in Scripture, Numbers chapter 7. I, I would suggest that we should consider four principles. Number one, worshiping God is central to all of life. Worshiping God is central to all of life. The dwelling place of God was a central feature of Israel so that every morning when a Jew got up and walked out of his tent, one of the first things that he would see was the smoke of God's presence rising from the tabernacle at the center of his camp. And that would remind him and all the people that their life revolves around God. And while it's true that God does exist everywhere at the same time, He is, all, uh, he is everywhere present, God still has a place where He resides in a special way. And while the expression of God's presence, His special presence, is different for us today, we don't have a tabernacle, we don't have an Ark of the Covenant where we walk into a, a place and, and see some smoke uh, billowing out to show God's presence. I think the principle still applies. We don't have a tabernacle or a bronze altar. altar. We, 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 we do have the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And the expectations that God had for Israel are the same expectations that God has for us today. And that is that God desires to dwell among us. And God wants to speak to us and bless us. But if we're going to do that, we need to recognize that worshiping God is at the center of all of life. It's not just something we do. Not just something we mark off our task list that we did it on Sunday. It should be something that we do with all of life. Now, there's a special gathering. There's a special kind of worship that we do today that we can't do on our own. But, but I think the, the, the setup of the Old Testament tabernacle helps us to see that while there is a specific time where we come and have some kind of corporate worship and offer corporate sacrifices for them, um, there is also a time when they should recognize that all of their life belongs to God. If we're going to meet with God on His terms, then we must listen to Him and respond to His grace by giving ourselves and our gifts to Him. That's what worshiping God with all of our life looks like. It looks like Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him, which is our reasonable service of worship. The very least that we can do for all that God has done for us. 
Number two, worshiping God is costly. Worshiping God on His terms is costly. If you think about it, did God really need the gifts of the people? Did God really need all of these rams and lambs and goats? I mean, would God have been poor in resources if Israel failed to act? Would the Levites be left without provisions? Well, not necessarily, because God owns the universe. He could certainly cause a herd of goats to wander into the Levites' care if He wanted to. He could make that the, 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 the means by which the Levites always received their, their sacrifices, right? God could just have some, some goats just wander into their care. Or He could cause the Levites to come upon some gold and silver so that they could make their own dishes. But God chose for the people to give so that they could share in the support of the work, so that they could recognize that worshiping God is costly. We'll touch more on that tonight when we look at 2 Samuel 21 because that is the nature of the atonement, that it is costly. And is not that not very similar to how God has designed His work today? I mean, if you think about it, we've taken an offering today. Does God really need our money to support this church? Does God need our money to support the missionaries around the world? Well, in one sense, He does because that's the means by which he's chosen. But in another sense, he doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and if he needed to, he could sell a few cows to keep this place running. But instead, he chose to include us in the support of the ministry through our money, through our gifts, through our spiritual gifts as well. So worshiping God is costly, and, and we ought to recognize that. Paul, um, David, when, he gets to, when we get to the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, has a piece of land that he wants to use to build an altar to God. And so he has some friends go and and, um, and uh, take this land effectively and give it to David for free. They said, don't pay us anything. And David said, how can I give to the Lord what cost me nothing? I mean, worshiping God ought to be costly to us. If it doesn't cost us anything, then, then what value is it to us and to God? But why would we ever want to give up what is costly to us? Why would we ever want to give up what we treasure? Right? Think about it from the, the Israelites' perspective. They had all these animals that were their pets, effectively. Right? They, they grew up. They, they raised them from the time that they were young. They spent time with them. They cared for them. And now they're bringing them to the tabernacle to be killed. Why would we ever want to give up what is costly to us? And I think the answer is found at the end of chapter 6. So let me remind you of that passage by reading it. Chapter 6, verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. You see, God has this desire in this, this benediction here. He has this desire to bless His people. And then the very next pas- passage that Moses <coughs> records for us is that the people give their gifts, give what is rightfully theirs, in a sense, to the worship of God at the tabernacle. 
So let me put this in the principle. Worshiping God is motivated by God's blessing. Giving to God is motivated by what God has done for us. So here's God at the end of chapter 6 saying, the Lord bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you. This is an act of grace, kindness. And so that ought to, right? if we think about it logically, not chronologically, in this case, remember, this happened earlier. Chapter 7 happened earlier. But chronologically, we we should consider that God's blessing is the motivation by which we give. Why would we give something that's costly to God? Why would we worship God, right? I mean, you, in a sense, are giving up something that you could have otherwise been doing this morning. And so in that sense, it's costly. And, And if you put any money in the offering, then you also gave up something that you could have used for something else. It's interesting to me that Moses placed this section at the end of chapter 6 where God blesses His people and then the first offering that is given in chapter 7 is the, after the carts are given and the oxen, the actual offering that's given is this grain offering. right? The silver dishes and the gold dish. The grain offering is the thanksgiving offering and it reminds us that the gifts from Israel were not given to God in order to give, in order for, for Him to bless them but rather they were given to God as a response to God's grace. Is not that what God does for us? That God blesses us and we see all these great blessings that we have in Christ. And as a response to that, our heart is motivated. It's, it takes joy in giving what is costly in order to worship God. So there are three principles, but I think the primary application, primary principle that comes from this text is this final one, which is that worshiping God is not a spectator sport. And that goes along with what I think the theme of this text is, which is that no one is exempt from contributing to the worship of God. No one can just say, you know what, I'm, I'm out on this. Everyone was made to worship God. Every tribe in this text, participated in its support. And you know, every single one of us were made to worship God. Since the time of Adam, every fallen human being was born with a spiritual void that can only be filled with God. And since our sin in Adam, God has tirelessly worked to restore fellowship with humanity. He took pleasure in revealing His glory to Adam and Eve in the garden. And today He takes pleasure and He will for eternity in showing His glory to His people. But our sin has created a gulf between us and God. And God has spanned that gulf with Jesus Christ, our mediator. And everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as the only means of their salvation is restored to fellowship with God. And just like with Israel, the church is called to get in the ball game of worship, so to speak. We're not called to sit on the sidelines and watch and cheer on the professionals. Every tribe had a responsibility, didn't they? Every tribe participated, they contributed, and they all contributed, in this case, the exact same amount. Now, that's not always going to be the case, but here it is. Now, the application for us is not that we need, each one of us, need to bring the same amount of offering, or we need to each supply the same spiritual gift to the church. But it does mean that we cannot sit on the bench when it comes to worship. The church is an organism that is empowered by the Spirit of God and each person is given various spiritual gifts 
for the benefit of the body. And so we must use those spiritual gifts for the needs of the body according to what we have. So we can make application for spiritual gifts and how we contribute to the, the organism of the local church. But I think there's also application for monetary giving as well. We are called to give on the first day of the week, Paul says. And really that's the pattern that you find in Acts. There, we also have application for contributing to the singing to one another, right? Sing to one another with song, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is a way that we edify one another, according to Ephesians chapter 5. And I think there's also application for our, our meeting together. That Hebrews 10 says that we should um, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but, but all the more as you see the day approaching, that we should be together and encouraging one another as long as it's called today so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there is some kind of application for contributing in that way. Just showing up. And then also in addition to that, speaking the truth to one another, one another in love, Ephesians 4 says. So we have all these responsibilities that God has given to us to contribute to the work of the church, to the, to the production, to the resources of the church. Because our goal as a church is to make every member mature in Christ. We want to see everyone presented as spotless on the day of Jesus Christ. So that means we need to use the resources that God has given to us for His purposes in building up the church. So what kind of spiritual gifts do you have that you can use for the benefit of the body? For some of us, that's teaching. For others, it is giving. For others, it is the gift of encouragement or hospitality. Whatever gift that we have is not meant to bury in the ground right until the Master returns, but rather to invest in the church that you have joined so that it builds up the ministry here. No one is exempt from contributing to the worship of God. And worshiping God is what we were made to do. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for how Your Word speaks to us and gives us illustrations of what our worship today would look like. We are not Old Testament Israel. The church is not Israel. We are in a new dispensation, a new time. Um, there are lots of differences that we have between us and Old Testament Israel. But there are a lot of similarities, a lot of things that we can see um, in ourselves that we see in them. And so we're thankful for the reminder of how important it is to come and to have a relationship with you. We're thankful for the reminder of how you desire to meet with us and to speak to us as you did to Moses and to bless us as you promised in the benediction. Lord, we have those same kinds of promises in the New Testament as well. You desire to live among us so that you will be our God and we will be your people. One of the clearest expressions of your presence is seen when we come together as a local body. And Lord, we, we don't want to forget about your presence and we don't want to forget about our responsibility. May we not have the mindset that, that the professionals can handle um, the, the responsibilities of worship and we'll just sit on the sidelines and do nothing. Lord, help us to contribute. Thank, I'm thankful for a church who is concerned 
about edifying the body and who is using their gifts in that way. Help us to do that better, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.